Welcome to Free Thoughts. I'm Trevor Burris. Joining me today is Brian Kaplan, professor of economics at George Mason University and author of many books. His latest is How Evil Are Politicians? Essays in Demagoguery. Welcome back to the show, Brian. Fantastic to be here again, Trevor. How evil are politicians? Very evil overall. They're people who wield immense power for high-ranking ones, the power of life over death, of freedom or imprisonment. Most of them put minimal effort into wondering, am I using this power justly? They focus, well, can I get away with it? What's the law? But is the law right or wrong? That's the kind of thing that very few successful politicians actually bother with, obviously. I mean, but you're willing to use the word evil here. It, it would seem misguided or, or ignorant, or maybe they haven't read enough of your books, you know, but like, you know, I mean, people who haven't read enough of your books are not necessarily evil. I completely agree. So, uh, what I say here is it's not a matter of even disagreeing with their political views where I could see, look, these are complicated issues. Rather, I, what I would say is that politicians violate a much simpler common sense principle, which I like to call the Spider-Man principle with great power comes great responsibility. It's not a matter of you have to know, you have to agree with me on even a wide range of issues. It's just the question of do they approach the taking of human life or the putting people in prison with great moral trepidation as one absolutely and obviously should. It's like, well, gee, I'm going to go and put this guy in jail for selling marijuana. Is that the kind of thing that you should go to jail for? Not the sort of question that politicians have really any tendency to wonder about. You could say, well, hardly anybody else does. So yes, but most people don't actually have the power to do it. It's one thing to say, well, he doesn't think about when it would be all right to go and kill an innocent person or put someone in jail for a peaceful act, when he doesn't have any power to do those things, then you say, well, what's the big deal? He doesn't have any power, so he doesn't think about it. But once you do have that power, then I say, obviously, it's incumbent upon you to wonder about whether that is the right thing to do. And we really see that almost no politician worries about this for the obvious reason that that is not the side that bread is buttered on. A politician who sits around saying, gee, is I, would it really be right to go and do that to another human being? is wasting time what they could be used, using to amass their power. But can we blame them as much as we're, you're blaming them? And look, you know, we, we came out of IHS seminars and having good professors and good influences that made us think at least twice about putting someone in a cage for uh, smoking marijuana, but also came out of the 80s drug war. I did dare. I was told that that was an absolutely moral thing to do. Uh, that was the right thing to do to people. And so at least in terms of backdrop background, like, can we blame them for not thinking the thoughts that, that we've thought before? Right. Again, there's a difference between thinking our thoughts, Trevor, which, yeah, I think you'd have to be pretty dogmatic to say everyone has to think my thoughts versus just saying, well, wait a second, I'm about to do something really bad. I'm the person that decides if this person lives or dies. I'm the person that decides if this person goes to jail or not. Say, well, this is what my society thinks, so I guess it's okay. Right? And again, this is really the same logic by which we condemn war criminals. Right? You know, if someone says, well, it was a war. Well, yeah, and this is a war crimes trial. This is where we go, and we harshly punish people who use that lame excuse to go and murder innocent people. And say, yeah, and yes, you damn well should have thought about it when you've got a gun in someone else's face and there's no one leaning over your shoulder saying, hey, is it all right for you to do it? Then who else can exert moral guidance other than the actor himself? This is something that Lord Acton pushes on very hard, and you don't have to read Lord Acton and understand it. With great power comes great responsibility. When you're the one that is deciding whether or not a person lives or dies, if you don't exert the moral judgment of saying, well, wait a second, just because it's in accordance with our laws doesn't make it right, there's no one else to do it. Well, let's take a step back for, for listeners who aren't familiar with the, the, the basics of public choice theory and also your, your personal opinions about the behavior of politicians. But how, do we, how should we understand the behavior of politicians in general? I mean, I feel like saying they're evil is a little facile, to say the least. And they don't think they're evil. Maybe some of them do, but they don't think they're evil. So we can't just use the evil framework to try and understand politicians' behavior. We have to use something else. Oh, who does think they're evil? Do Nazis think they're evil? Do Stalinists think they're evil? There is a point where it's like, well, gee, we can't call anyone evil unless they agree. 
that sounds like a really low bar, or, or rather really high bar. It's like, well, then no one's ever evil, no matter what they do. So I say that is a great mistake. Now, in terms of what public choice theory says motivates politicians, well, the main thing to remember is this is a very intense competition when we're talking about the good jobs in politics. And there might not be really intense competition to be the assistant secretary dog catcher, and then maybe you just land in that job because nobody else wants it. But for jobs where you are the head of state, a major minister, senator, congressman, these are jobs where there is an intense competition to get them. The way that you get them, of course, is by getting public support. You need to be popular. And so the usual public choice story is that politicians, in order to get these jobs, have to win this intense competition. Um, I'd say that, so just to back up even further, so public choice is, of course, the jargon that we use for using economics to study politics. It has a bunch of other names, sometimes just economics of politics. That's a pretty good one. Even appears in Star Wars Episode Two. <laughs> if you're paying attention, the economics of politics. Anakin says it to Obi-Wan. But in any case, uh, th this is the area where we use economics to understand politics. We've got There's a basic logic of vote maximization. If you are trying to win power in a contest against someone else is also trying to win power. If whoever is most popular wins, then obviously it is a big popularity contest. Um, now, you might say, well, since you had to win a contest in order to get there, you can't be blamed. You say, again, that is a very strange bar to put. You can only blame someone if there was no contest or no, or there was not tight competition to get the job. I'd say, well, still, we could blame you after that. Why not? Um, and then furthermore, once you have the power, this is where you don't even have that excuse. It's like, well, gee, if I don't go and do all these terrible things that, that are popular, I'm probably not going to get reelected. Say, well, how about you just do the right thing for one term and then lose office? <laughs> how about that? Uh, is that within your capabilities to lose on purpose rather than do immense evil? Oh, why? But I want to keep ruling. <laughs> uh, well, okay, let's let's defend the politicians here. Uh, <laughs> so. They would like maybe, and you know, they have issues that they care about that maybe the American people, their constituency, doesn't care about as much. Uh, maybe they really want single payer health care, but their constituency doesn't want single payer health care. Maybe they're actually like open borders, uh, but they know that their constituency would not be for open borders or drug legalization, but that would not get them elected. But it is not silly to say, I believe that I am still better than the person who could get this job instead if I can get in there and say, well, I can't legalize drugs if I want to keep my job, and neither can anyone in this job legalize drugs. Uh, but I can work to roll back sentencing. I can work to make sure that the drug war is not as harsh, and that's better than just going in there, voting to legalize drugs, and then losing your job, and then having someone worse come in. So that they defend it as the lesser of, of two evils or other people who would be in that job. That's not morally incoherent, I would say. It's better to do a little bit of a little bit of good thing than like none of a good thing. Yeah, that's a very reasonable argument, Trevor. Of course, it's also something you'd expect someone who would say if they are a power-hungry person that actually in no way minds doing evil things or in fact wants to, and they meet you and they want to get you off their back. So we ought to have, you really ought to be uh, to hear such things with great skepticism. I have actually talked to people that have talked to major leaders, presidents. I think I've actually sometimes got people independently saying they were told opposite things privately. Right? Which, huh? Well, maybe the, maybe one person was hearing the truth, or maybe there's just a general a general system of leaders of figuring out what each person wants to hear and telling them that while. The whole time you're you're planning on just doing whatever will maximize your power. Although even that, I'll agree. I think that is uh, too simple-minded of a story that politicians are just trying to maximize power. I think a lot of politicians they've got a philosophy, they've got an ideology, so they are in their own minds they're making a trade-off between advancing the cause they believe in and staying in power. And really, what I am criticizing is not is not mere lack of consistency with your own views of politics but rather just the failure to sit down and wonder, huh, maybe just my society is evil and what we're doing is just really wrong. So, you know, I totally believe that a lot of politicians have the crisis of conscience where they say, gee, I really believe in single-payer health care, but I just voted for this compromise. Is that okay? But to have the crisis of conscience where you say, hmm, is this really the kind of thing government should be doing anyway? That's the one where I think very few people would ever bother with because 
It's not the level of conscience that most people have. And yet, and it's one where I say, you don't need to be very thoughtful to realize that you ought to have it. Because, you know, here's the thing. You know, almost everyone throughout history thought their society was fine. And now we take a look and we see almost every society throughout history and say, wow, these societies are really monstrously evil. Um, now you could say, well, we're the one self-righteous society. All the other ones are fine. Really? All the slave societies are fine. All the societies where they go and massacre people because they're a different religion are fine. Uh, seems unlikely. But then it's like, hmm, it's our society reached the peak. We're the one society in human history that's been above criticism. I don't think so. Say, what should people in ancient Rome have been doing? Especially what should leaders in ancient Rome have been doing? Yeah, they really should have been listening to people like Epictetus saying, oh, is slavery actually okay? I mean, I know it's I know people believe in it. And again, it's, there's, there is a big difference, I would say, between someone who thinks about these issues in a fair-minded way and then says, yeah, I mean, I agree, slavery is really terrible, but I don't think that I have anything that I could do other than moderate a little bit, so I'm going to stay in power unless someone even worse comes along. That's someone where I would say that could be a very decent person. I just I just think that these people are ultra-rare. Either that or they're incredible actors. <laughs> I just don't think that they're that good as actors. I think they are normal, intellectually, and morally lazy people whose thought is, well, am I going to get criticized for this by people that I count on? No? Well, then I guess everything's hunky-dory, full speed ahead. That brings up some, a concept that you have written about extensively and you write about in the book, which is social desirability bias. Uh, I, I find it, I've always found it interesting you call it bias. Uh, there's There's reasons to try and pursue social desirability. There's reasons to hold your tongue at a dinner party when everyone you'll disagree with everyone and you don't want to rile up the dinner party and also make yourself seem like a pariah. So it's, it's, it's a, it's a drive. It seems to me more than a, a bias, uh, but it, it is important in this story. Well, I say that we can make a distinction between just acting in socially desirable ways or keeping your mouth shut uh, what social desirability bias is about and why researchers call it a bias is it's referring specifically to cases where the truth sounds bad, so people lie. It's not merely trying to be polite. It's not merely keeping your mouth shut. It's actually affirmatively saying things that are untrue because the truth is so ugly. And then the higher level social desirability is just when you, the lies become so ubiquitous, people often start actually kind of believing absurd things. So that's what I am focusing on. Again, like the, you know, the, there's these standard textbook examples, things like people lie about whether they vote, right? There's a, where we see the share of people who claim to vote is less than the share that actually vote. That is a bias. What people say is not uh, is unreliable relative to actual behavior. Church attendance, same way. People exaggerate their church attendance. Okay? But then we see more striking examples, things like we actually do have data on two things. First of all, whether what people say they would do if they had a Down syndrome baby, right, or Down syndrome fetus, would you abort? And there, the number, the share that say they will abort is quite low. Maybe if I remember, something like twenty percent, thirty percent. On the other hand, the share that actually abort when they're in that situation is more like eighty-five or ninety percent. Right. Uh, again, this is a case where there is a chasm between what people say they would do and what they actually do. Right? And there are many other examples. A lot of what I say in how evil are politicians is that once you understand this idea of this chasm between what people say and what people do when the truth sounds ugly, you suddenly understand politics on a much deeper level than you ever have before. Because when you listen to what politicians say, so little of it is literally true. It's standard. You'll have something like PolitiFact where they'll go and they'll fact check a politician. And they'll say, well, 70% lies, 20% lies. And it's like, you're, get, well, you're getting those numbers because you have a, because you're very forgiving when you assess lies. Like when someone says, "We will do everything in our power to go and help Ukraine," that's not true unless you're putting every penny in your budget above and beyond what you need to keep giving money to Ukraine into Ukraine. You haven't, you are not doing everything possible to help Ukraine, and yet no one like Politifact will score that as a lie. And yet, huh? Yeah, actually, that's a lie. And so are all the other things that people say we're going to do everything in our power. And notice how often a politician will actually say, for 10 distinct conflicting issues, we're going to do everything in our power. You pick one, dude. Well, I mean, I think people don't take those lines necessarily seriously. Uh, they, 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 they understand political rhetoric is political rhetoric. So 
whether well, it's... Well, to some extent, but here's the thing. Why is all the political rhetoric, and it really is all, why is it all like this? Why is it all so packed with lies? And I think it really is the case that while there is some tendency to realize, well, they can't literally mean that, but on the other hand, you whip up support by saying things that naive people will take quite literally. When you, you can go and talk to a totally normal person, and they will speak in this very same bizarre way to you. And you realize, you know, like, there are a lot of naive people who will actually take it for granted. And furthermore, I think it does explain why so often cost-benefit analysis goes out the window in politics. Because once you say, like, if it costs a single life, you back yourself into a corner. It is hard to actually make trade-offs once you start talking in this way. So I think that when you see people going and still pushing you know, outdoor masking of children, despite the astronomically low risk, this, I think, is actually a reflection of people saying this nonsense of if it saves one life too many times, never thinking, well, wait a second. Like, does that mean we can never drive to the movies again? Because we could die on the way to the movie. Does this mean that we can never give it and uh, serve peanuts again? Because maybe there's a, an ultra peanut sensitive person. And yet once you politicize an issue, it becomes very hard to do cost benefit analysis. And then people find themselves backed into these corners. So I think an, another example in the book is think about every pro-war speech you've ever heard. I don't think I've ever, ever heard a pro-war speech saying something like 50% chance this war helps, 30% chance it makes no difference, 20% chance it makes it worse. I like those odds. Let's do it. Instead, when someone wants to push a war, they just give you the most absurd, ridiculous hyperbole of, you're like, this will definitely save things. There could be no doubt. Victor, if we work together, victory is assured. And yeah, you say this stuff to go and get and start a war. I think it, like the idea that this does not increase the frequency of wars seems pretty implausible. Furthermore, the fact that once you've said this stuff, it doesn't prolong wars and make it hard for people just to admit, oh, whoops, sorry, I guess we're going to stay in Afghanistan for 20 years. And I think it really does get you, like that kind of rhetoric does get you to a position where you go and do terrible things, and not terrible things so that good will come, but terrible things even though you don't believe that good will come, just because you don't want to be embarrassed. I feel I have to ask, this is going to be a little bit of a throwback uh, to some of your early work, but some of our listeners might be thinking, the problem is voters. I mean, you, 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 you're talking about placating voters, and yes, absolutely, everyone, no one, no sane person would deny that politicians do that. Uh, so, and we have uninformed people in this country and they like to vote for things they that they don't understand yeah, like and irrational, say, irrational. they're, they're irrational, they're rationally irrational, they're rationally ignorant. They, there are a bunch of things that you've written about, especially in the myth of the rational voter. Um, so that's the reality that a politician has to accept and talk to them on their terms. So why wouldn't we try to fix voters? Uh, first, and then if we fix voters, we we might get better politicians. Yeah, of course, fixing voters is super hard, uh, be, precisely because they have no, uh, they're they're really not held to any level of responsibility. In terms of a, how can you blame a politician when the only way he has to win is to go and make and say a bunch of demagogic lies? This is where I come back to what happens to them if they break their promises to voters. Realistically, the only thing happen that happens is they don't get reelected. Is that really so bad? There is in the law a duress defense. I murdered that person because someone had a gun to my head, and if I didn't commit the murder, then I would have been murdered. That seems like a reasonable defense. Politicians very rarely can give anything remotely comparable. It's like, well, if I don't do that, then I, if I don't do this, then I would probably lose the uh, lose re-election. So I'd only get to exert great power for four to six years. You can imagine how tough that is. And then when I retire, I'd have to only, I'd have to settle for. Just another really comfortable upper class job. So you can see how that's kind of like having a gun at your head. It's like, no, it's not like having a gun at your head to say that I only get to, to wield immense power for four or six years. And afterwards, I have to settle for having a job that is better than 99.99% of jobs. That's why I had to go and murder a bunch of people. No, <laughs> that is not a, remotely comparable to a real duress defense. And the right thing to say to someone like that is, Look, the only ethical thing you have to do is use the power justly for the time that you have it, and then accept that people will be mad at you and give up power. And of course, maybe you'll get lucky and the economy will boom and you will actually get reelected, not for anything that you did, but just hang on the coattails of something that you didn't have control over, which we also know is how voters vote, is 
if the incumbent's party, if the economy's doing well, then the incumbent's party does well, even if they were doing a bunch of unpopular stuff. The difficulty here, I mean, the book is very interesting to take a kind of like overview of the book, uh, the essays in demagoguery and and different ways that politicians hide the truth. Uh, one of my favorite essays in the book, which gets to some of these these issues, is about phasing in the minimum wage, uh, ah, which, yes. which is a very interesting <laughs> phenomenon. I'd never thought about it this way before. That 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 the ver- that the phasing in the minimum wage is is some sort of concession to a political reality in in a way. All right. So when you raise the minimum wage, it is totally abnormal to say effective immediately the minimum wage goes up. Instead, the way that it works is it says starting on a certain date, some months or even years in the future, the minimum wage goes up to this amount. And then often it'll be, and then a year or two after that, it goes up to another amount. And then there's the question, well, why didn't you just say it goes up immediately? And this is one where you say, well, there's all these jerks that wouldn't allow it. You, know, you had the votes, so why not? And to me, it's just strongly that even people who dismiss the idea that the minimum wage has disemployment effects actually believe in them themselves. And they are thinking, yeah, if we go and we raise the minimum wage immediately, there's going to be, there will, there will be these disemployment effects, and then people will get mad at us. All right. Now, at this point, you might say, all right, well, they're trying to go and prevent the harm from happening. It's like, well, look, once you admit that there are these disemployment effects that would happen if you raise it immediately, shouldn't you also believe that they will happen over the longer run? In fact, if you know even some very basic economics, it's really the other way around. Standard economics says that responses are stronger over a longer time frame. That's why, you know, for example, when the price of gas goes up, this doesn't immediately change the gas mileage of the American car fleet. Right, and because we have, we've already bought the cars. We got a bunch of gas uh, of, of uh, what were they called in the old days? Uh, yeah, gas, gas guzzlers. Gas, gas, gas guzzlers. Yes, it's yeah. been so long since I heard that phrase. <laughs> I, grew up, got, I grew up on it. Now, once again, the gas guzzler is much on people's minds due to the uh, very high price. Rather, when the price of gas goes up over the longer run, people the car fleet changes. People switch over to lower gas mileage car or higher gas mileage cars, electric cars. And so there's a lo- there is a stronger response to a price change over the long run, which is the way that economics usually works. Therefore, if you say that the minimum wage is going to cause disemployment if you raise the minimum wage a lot suddenly, you should believe there will be at least that much disemployment that will be caused over the long run. In fact, you should believe there will be more disemployment caused in the long run. So then why would someone be motivated to want to phase it in rather than do it immediately? It can't really be because they want to reduce the disemployment effect. Rather, it's because they want to fuzz the disappointment effect. They want to blur it. It's the idea, well, if we go and we raise the minimum wage a lot right away, and then this causes a lot of jobs, people will blame us. But if we raise it over the course of years, then we'll always have plausible deniability. No, there's never going to be a smoking gun. And then we can continue to go and libel and slander opponents of the minimum wage as being liars and making stuff up, which is what I think is really going on. That's why I call it a demagogic theory of the minimum wage this is one where, on the one hand, you want to go and pretend like anyone who opposes the minimum wage just hates the poor. Same time, the people that are pushing for the laws themselves believe this very same theory in their, secretly in their hearts. Otherwise, why would they design the laws these ways? In demagoguery, which is a word you use a lot in the book and, and it's in the subtitle, uh, is it demagoguery to take this political phasing in position? just to make what let, let's stipulate that they believe that the minimum wage will help people overall people who really advocate for the minimum wage as you know and there are serious economists who do think that the the benefits offset the costs so again phasing it in is a way of of making sure that that we see this happen gradually uh, and even understanding that and doing it for the politically possible for something you think is a good thing uh, now, as you said, it, you know, to to not be evil, you don't have to agree with us on minimum wage, right? You don't have to uh, totally agree with our substantive policy positions. Uh, so, is it really demagoguery as opposed to like political strategy? I say that it is political demagoguery because normally this goes part and parcel with acting like anyone who opposes raising minimum wage is demonic, and saying and calling calling us liars and saying we're just making this up or that we're just ideologues. 
So this is not really a case of where someone has calmly and reasonably figured out that it's totally worth it, and then, well, I've got to do some evil that good might come. This is more of a case where they just want to avoid having any kind of actual reasonable discussion about the facts in order to look good themselves and gain power. So yeah, so while I, I, I will confess, though I wrote this book, I do not have telepathy. I don't actually get inside the heads of others. I can only infer what's going on from their actions. But when I go and look at politicians that are pushing for the minimum wage, I don't see that more than a tiny handful of them have ever done any kind of independent review of labor demand elasticity and said, ah, well, it turns out that it's actually quite low in absolute value, and so this is safe. The most that I think you could ever get a politician of this sort to do is to say, well, what do people on our side say? And then they go and they get some favorable numbers and then say, okay, great, let's go and use those numbers. That is not an intellectually honest thing to do. It is evil. It is just what an evil person would do. Say, hey, well, I know I want to do this, and this is and this is going to make me popular. And now, can I find some hired guns that will that have my back, and then repeat what they say? Right. What an intellectually honest person would do is precisely say, "Well, yeah, of course, that's what my people say. What do people on the other side say?" At this point, you might say, "Well, Brian, do you do that?" Yeah, I do actually. I do read people on the other side. I do try to find out what their arguments are. I mean, honestly, my favorite thing is just to find out what are the numerical estimates of the most boring wonk person who doesn't care, seem to care about politics at all, just a person who's just like Ben Stein out of Ferris Bueller's Day Off saying, and so our best estimate of labor demand elasticity is negative 0.4 with a standard deviation. Like, that's the person I trust the most, honestly. I mean, you know, like, so, like, I mean, I, I really will say that when I want to go and get answers to an empirical question, I, you know, it's true. I don't immediately go to the other side. I certainly don't go to my own side where I'll say, well, yeah, with people on my side, of course, they're probably going to go and have a bunch of optimistic things. I try to find out what are the most boring neutral people say about it first. Now, again, also, I want to read the other stuff, too. But to realize, like, almost no politician's going to go and read that guy saying labor demand elasticity is negative 0.4 and then say, huh, well, given that, is this actually a good idea to go and raise the minimum wage or to have a minimum wage? In this context, then, I guess you would say that ultimately there, there's not a huge, and you do say in the book, difference between Republicans and Democrats in this regard. And yeah, I mean, it's almost all rhetoric. They're all, they're, all, they're all power hungry. They're all liars. Obviously. Obviously. Like the Really, the best that you could get out of it would be something like, well, I've really thought about these issues in a reasonable way, and it turns out that one group of intellectually dishonest people is actually pushing for better policies than another group of intellectually dishonest people. It doesn't really make them better people, probably. Like, like the, the only case that I think that you might make for one side over the other is, say, look, one side is fighting to defend a system that we know from experience works, and the other one is pushing to change the system in a way that we know does not work. So maybe you could try that, although even there you might say, well, all right, but there's like every existing system has so many bad things, and just to try to preserve it as it is, that is pretty bad too. And as you point out, the interesting thing, which I've thought the, this many, many times, I think anyone, especially with our ideology, where, where the difference does seem to be rhetoric, because if you say, you look at how people talk about the other side when they say, hey, the Republicans want to mildly reform welfare. Uh, but the the accusation from the Democrats yeah. is that they want to destroy <laughs> welfare entirely. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the, the Democrats want to increase environmental regulation, but the Republicans are going to say, oh, they want to turn us into a, a, a green socialist state. Uh, it's all fairly ridiculous. One of my favorite, and I'm sure uh, you would very much sympathize in this, is the description of policies as open borders uh, when they are slight, maybe not even really like with, like with the Biden administration who has done very little to open up immigration. But let's if you turn on Fox News, it is just described daily as open borders policies of the Biden administration. Like, so is this just the feedback loop between evil politicians, as you say, and partisan voters who prefer team sports to intellectual honesty? Yeah, yeah, of course. Right, so. Hyperbole is something that is intellectually very appealing. And you know, my, you know, one of my slogans is, you know, hyperbole is the worst thing in the universe, which uh, obviously it's not the worst thing in the universe. It's a joke. But yes, you can, you know, but if you, you know, again, like if you just try talking to yourself, uh, so try talking and listen to your own words, 
the human tendency to use hyperbole is quite strong. When something's going down 3%, say everyone is changing. Yeah, 3% of people change. 3% isn't everyone. Right? So it does require intellectual self-discipline to not use it. But then you observe in politics that rather than not use, rather than merely refraining from using the intellectual self-discipline, you actually see people whipping themselves up to a frenzy because they realize, gee, the more hyperbolic I get, the more people on my side like it. So why, yeah, why shouldn't I just go and tell outrageous lies and, sl and libel and slander the other side and pretend like they're way worse than they are? The only thing I would say is, you know, you know like, like the mitigating factor I would say for people that are political insiders is if you look at the at like the most extreme one or two percent of the elected officials of the other party, they probably are as bad <laughs> as and, and they and they are the ones that are making compromises to get power. And so, yeah, so I believe there probably are some fanatical green socialists in the Democratic Party, well, you know, but not just in the party, but in Congress. Again, there and there probably are you know, a few Republicans, although I think. That one is a little hard. Who actually want to get rid of welfare? But uh, getting you know, so obviously there are plenty that wanted that were really happy to get rid of Roe versus Wade. They weren't taking much action for a long time. But, you know, things like that. I can believe there's a few Repub elected Republican congressmen who want to ban contraception. Not many, but you know that there could be five like that. So it wouldn't be shocking at all. And then those and the people are the ones who get the all other, the, yeah. they get yeah. all of the yeah, press. The other, the other, yeah, or the other side just encounters them, that kind of thing, and it's like, hey, there's a couple. And if there's a couple, then there's some other people who are as bad as they are for tolerating them. <laughs> and there's another group that is as bad as the first group for tolerating the people who tolerate those people. And it goes all the way and down. So on, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so on. And that's why everyone on the other side is satanic. So how are libertarians demagogic? A great question. Of course, since the very few libertarians actually have power, that is a sign of not doing it so much. Although it's only a symptom. And if you look more closely... So if you actually go and listen at a Libertarian Party convention, then I think you'll see, yes, it's a very high level of demagoguery geared to a different demos. So when you are trying to get the uh, to get elected for the Libertarian Party convention, what the mob wants to hear is very different from what a normal audience of Americans wants to hear. But still, the winners are making outrageous lies, obviously. Right now, so, you know, the hyperbole of, you know, if we, we, if we do this, this will lead to like, you know, night and day differences, even for you know, a very small thing. Let's see. So you remember the term, I think this was like the, maybe it was the 1980 Libertarian Party Convention. I think they actually had an auction for different bureaus that you, know, you basically would bid to, uh, to buy the bureau you wanted to abolish. <laughs> right. So I just bought the EPA for 50 bucks. So, and that shows that I want to abolish that one. Right. Well, the yeah, you did. That, you know, you, even, even if you did, did do elect a libertarian president, you're not going to be able to abolish these things. Yeah. When, and you and I have both been in situations as IHS students and members of these libertarian meetings of various sorts where you can see the kind of flexing of libertarian muscles against each other. So the, the famous story of Mises Friedman and Hayek talking at the yes. first <laughs> Pellerin societies, I mean, it's like, Oh, you believe in roads, you're a bunch of socialists, like that kind of thing. And it's, it's an interesting, uh, it's a display of, I always say there's no feasible upper limit to human superiority complexes. So as if libertarians are the vegetarians and the anarchists are the vegans and the mutualists are the, are the going raw and they all, they all, <laughs> crap on people to the to the other side right so the vegans crap on the vegetarians the vegetarians crap on the pescatarians you know for not being morally pure so that is a pretty good situation for for a type of demagoguery uh, at least within these demoses yes now of course you, once you understand the literal meaning of social desirability bias just having a more extreme moral position would not qualify. What would qualify would be actually saying things that are untrue because they sound good. So I mean, the better an analogy would be something like, look, going vegan isn't even a sacrifice because vegan food tastes better than, uh, than non-vegan food. It's like, it's not to most people. And then <laughs> like, and actually, I think I saw you sneaking some meat the other day too. Why did you do that? Did you really think that, it that vegan food tastes better? Come on, you don't really think that. Of course it doesn't taste as good. And again, same thing with we go and have one more regulation. This will crash the whole system. Actually, I remember when I was in the green room at Fox News. Anytime you're in a green room, it's a surreal experience because they have the show you're going to be on on. And then 
you watch the show and then the person from TV walks back into the room a few minutes later and is like, wait a second, a person from fantasy world just crossed over into real world. That can't be. But watching Fox News there, I remember this is during the 2020 election. I can't remember who it was, but one of the main anchors says, look, the Democrats are elected. The U.S. economy will collapse, not in a matter of years or months, but weeks. All right. Well, want to put a bet on that? Yeah, I don't think so. It's changing gears a bit, but still on the same topic. Why are you a pacifist? And how is that connected to your theory of demagoguery? So just to start, pacifism is a word with multiple meanings. There's one meaning that I disavow, and that is saying you should never use violence in any circumstance. And then there is another meaning, though, of having a strong presumption against war. And that is the one that I do have. Right. Now, why am I a pacifist? Because of the following argument. And I really will say, this is the argument where when I thought of it, I said, this is an argument that is intellectually solid. And this is one where I'm not merely just stating my opinion or rationalizing my opinion. It's one where I say, look, this is an argument with steps. If you disagree, you've got to disagree with a step and tell me what the step is and what's wrong with it. The steps of the argument for pacifism. Uh, premise number one, modern warfare always involves murder or manslaughter of innocent people. There's no such thing as defensive war in modern war because the weapons are just too indiscriminate. Right? There might, if you really look hard, you might find a handful of examples, but that's, it's not going to be anything, no, anything notable. But you can say, look, there's unprovoked aggression of North Korea into South Korea. Yeah, well, do you know what, it, what happened during the Korean War? Pyongyang was leveled. 99% of the buildings are destroyed. And was every one of those buildings inhabited by someone in the Korean Workers' Party plotting mass murder? Right? I don't think so. There were just a lot of totally innocent people in there. Right? Which, which often leads people to say, well, you know, every single citizen of the, of the country is guilty. Like, what about the people who were against the government? They're guilty. It's like, well, they should have overthrown it. Like, how? How is Joe Blow, the janitor, supposed to overthrow... Oh, yeah, supposed to overthrow Kim you know, Kim Jong Il, right? So that <laughs> seems, uh, <laughs> or yeah, yeah, yes, uh, you know, Kim Il Sung. Kim, Kim Il Sung, yeah. It seems seems like quite a demanding yeah. requirement right. to be. And then, yeah, and then finally, it's like, all right, fine. How about the babies? What about the babies? What about them? Like, what do they do? Right. So this is the first premise that actual war in the real in the modern world, it is a myth to say that you can fight a defensive war because you wind up. You know, normally murder, where like where you just deliberately go and kill a bunch of people. You minimum manslaughter, where you say, "Look, we didn't want to kill all those babies. They just happen to be within a hundred miles of the people we were trying to kill." Uh, if you try this defense when you're when you're accused of murder of, of, of killing some babies, you will not get away with it, even if you have ironclad proof. Look, like, yes, look, I was I, I look I was shooting back at someone shooting me, and the killer happened to be in a building, and I like I had a rocket launcher, so I blew the whole thing up. I didn't want to kill the babies, but blame that blame the guy shooting at me for why I destroyed the entire building. Like no, your right of self defense does not extend to going and killing a bunch of innocent people, even if you say I didn't want to. Right, even if we can prove that you didn't want to, that's not good enough. All right. So that's the first premise. Uh, second premise is a moral one. This one says that before you go and murder or manslaughter innocent people, you ought to know with confidence that the benefits substantially exceed the costs. It's not enough just to say, look, I murdered 100, 100 people to save 101 people. Right? You've got to show there's actually a multiple. Uh, this is inspired by a famous thought experiment in philosophy, sometimes called the forced organ donation hypothetical. It involves a, a surgeon who has five patients. Each patient needs a different organ transplant to live. One needs a lung, one needs a heart, one needs two kidneys, one needs a pancreas, so on. Right? And then a perfectly healthy guy with all his organs attacks walks by. He has no friends, no family, no one will miss him. And if you kill him, no one will ever find out you did it. Right? So is it morally permissible to go and murder that guy and harvest his organs because you can save five lives at the expense of one? There are some people bite the bullet and say that's fine. And for them, my argument doesn't work. But for everyone else, I'll say, look, this does, you know, now like, you, know, you could raise the number up. And of course, people will. It's like, how about if we, you know, we can save a million lives? And then I'll, I'll, there's almost always some point, all right, fine, for that many. But five to one is a line where most people say, no, that's not enough. We can't just go and murder one innocent person to save five strangers. Right? And if you apply this ratio to war and say, look, we've got to be able to say with confidence 
that we are going to save five times as many lives as we kill when we go and start doing murder and manslaughter on the other side. Right? This is the uh, this is the standard for what you would have to be able to say in order to go and justifiably do that kind of thing, which is integral to modern war. And finally, there's the third premise. Third premise just says that the long-run benefits of war are actually highly uncertain. How do we know this? Well, there's a number of ways we could show it. You can go and look at the best research on this ever by Phil Tetlock in his book, Expert Political Judgment, How Good Is It? How Can We Know? This was some of the most amazing political psychology ever done. In the 80s, he actually gave a whole bunch of political experts a bunch of forecasting problems. He wrote down their answers, and he waited for the events to unravel, to unfurl. And it turned out that even the greatest experts in foreign policy were very bad at actually predicting what would happen. So you can do that and say, look, someone may say, oh, I'm confident that if we just go and invade Iraq, this is going to prevent something much worse. But normally people are actually really bad at making these forecasts. Often they're just totally wrong. We can look at some of the most egregious ones, like World War I was called the war to end all war. Like, why do you think we call it World War I, Trevor? Because <laughs> right? it wasn't the war to end all war. Right. Now, and of course, when you act... You have to act with uncertainty. So this means that we have this last empirical premise of people who's very bad at judging this. People are very quick to go and do horrible things in the short run, promising that great good will come, even though they don't really know and, in fact, have a high degree of being wrong. Right now, again, if all that we had was the uncertainty, then you could just say, well, maybe the war will turn out much better than you thought, maybe much worse. This is why you do need that middle premise of you've got to have confidence that we have a large excess of benefits over costs before we're justified. Anyway, so these are the three premises. And I say when you snap them together, you just get a very strong presumption against war because if you, you know, if you look at any possible war and you, you know, like how often can you honestly, calmly say with confidence, this is this, if we fight this war, it will save, you know, save more than five times as many people as we are going to go and kill. As innocent people, innocent people that we're going to kill. Yeah, and as you pointed out before, if you bring in the the demagoguery, the rhetoric around war is usually at the at minimum quite ridiculous, if not verging on evil. Yeah, yeah. I mean, again, this is where like, you know, like even if you want to be really forgiving, it's like, look, this guy's going to go and murder a million people for vanity. I mean. I mean, you know, this is an example. This is like, like so Lyndon Johnson, far from the worst guy of the 20th century. Like, I don't know, maybe he's not even the top hundred when you really go and do the count. But from my understanding, from what his own sympathetic biographer says, is by about the middle of his second term, Johnson's like, yeah, well, the Vietnam War is unwinnable, but if I go and back out, it's going to make the make the Democrats look bad, and we're going to do badly and badly in the election. And it's like, so hundreds of thousands of people, you're going to kill them. Innocent people, you know, even Amer- you know, so Amer- American soldiers are going to kill them because you don't want to go and lose office. And then, you, and then, oh, my God, you have to just go and be a really famous big shot who's out of power and write your memoirs and give speeches for, I don't know, at the time, for the rubber chicken circuit. Oh, poor you. Oh, my God, how awful. So, yeah, you know, like, you know, that, you know, that, and again, that's a politician who's not even that bad in the broad scheme of things. Someone who will go and murder very large numbers of people for a war he doesn't even think is going to work out. It's just like, well, you know, like, like it's, it'd be embarrassing at this point. We sort of have to let things play out and wait for our hand to be forced. Otherwise, they'll call us chicken. Jesus Christ, man. Like, that's the way you think you're a monster and, and a monster. And he says, well, there's worse than me. I, I know. I know, Lyndon. I know there's worse than you. <laughs> so are we just too cynical then? I mean, it, it, it seems at the end of this conversation and, and, and you know, finishing your book, you'd sort of say, kind of throw up your hands and say, well, what, what can you do? I, you know, what, what can you expect of politicians? What can you expect of voters? Not much. And at the, not at the nearly end, cynical it, enough, Trevor. Not nearly cynical <laughs> enough. <laughs> we can go further. So... So, I mean, is there a cure? Is there is there a thing we can do to try and fight against these forces? Well, step one is to be the change you want to see in the world. So just to realize, gee, if I ever get power, I'm going to act with conscience. Right? So that's, you know, it's a small thing, but you know, anyone listening, right? anyone here who has power, look, power is not an excuse to do, to do horrible things. It doesn't mean, well, look, people, the, the voters gave me this power. Yeah, well, I mean... 
not to put too fine a point on it, but you know who else was given power by voters? Adolf Hitler. Right? <laughs> he really was. Yeah, so, you know, the, you know, last elections, there were some voter for, voter tampering, but still, like, you know, he got, he genuinely, I think it's very hard to deny that he got a higher share of the vote legitimately than any anyone else in the Weimar democracy ever did. He just did really well. Like, people were really, like, he they voted for this. I'm like, that's not good enough. Not, not, not by a long shot. Like you've got to be, or you, know, you have to monitor yourself. You have to be, you know, it's precisely when no one else is monitoring you, when no one else is there to stop you, that you have to be your own self-monitor because otherwise you will become a villain. I mean, there's really no two ways about it. If you are not, if you do not consciously strive to not be a villain and you have power, that's what you will become. So that's step one. Of course, a lot of what I'm trying to do is just to spread these ideas, especially among the, the elite, just to make people more mindful of the more responsibility that leaders face, to hold them in lower esteem, to be, and yes, to be cynical about them. Uh, there's another chapter in the book called Could Such a Man Care, where I just talk about what really should be a great puzzle of the large number of murderous, brutal dictators who come to power not by saying I'm going to be a murder, brutal, a murder, a murderous, brutal dictator. Not by saying I'm going to be a normal guy, but by putting their heart on their sleeve and saying, you know, unlike all of the other politicians, I genuinely care about the well-being of the people. I love the, you know, the, you know, the poor, the orphans. Right? This is a standard trope of politics that someone gets power by demagogically saying, unlike all the other politicians, I am an incredibly caring person. And then this very person becomes a standout mass murderer thug. Why does this work? Because of human gullibility, because of insufficient cynicism. Like if people really were suitably cynical, they would use base rates and say, well, how often do politicians say that to gain power? How often do they really do it? So they say it often. They do it basically never. And then furthermore, the really cynical insight is to say the people who, who cry the most about how much they love the poor are the worst of the worst. They are terrible. They are, uh, they are, they are people, they are psychopathic fanatics who are planning on doing horrible things in the name of the orphans and the poor. But the only thing they're really going to be able to deliver is the bloodbath. Helping people is much harder. You know, it doesn't take great competence or skill as a leader to murder a million people. But to go and save a million orphans, that takes actual ability, right? And we see like the politicians that will do the first, do the horrible bloodbath, the world's full of them. Even the countries where we say, oh, they don't have good state capacity. Yeah, well, they still have the state capacity to do mass murder, right? You know, Rwanda. <laughs> but to actually cause economic growth, to go and, and, and go and lift the poor of their country out of poverty, very few have that. So don't be an evil, murderous dictating dictator. That's a, that's step one. Yeah. Don't trust murderous, brutal dictators. That's step two. Now, what about as a voter? What what should you do? Yeah, like I said, don't trust people who say that I care. I love the poor. Don't trust those people. When someone says I'm going to save our country, do not trust them. Right? You know, affirmatively distrust them. Those are, on average, the worst of the worst. Like, honestly, if you have someone who just says business as usual and another person who says, let's go and have a violent bloodbath in order in order to go and reach paradise, like definitely go with just the horrible troglodyte who wants to keep things the same. Right. In terms of reformers, I would say, like, the only ones to trust are the ones who can sound like the first generation of post-communist leaders in Eastern Europe. People who do not say we want to go and massacre a bunch of people. People just say, look, we just we, we, we want to have freedom. We want to have peace with our neighbors. We want to go and reduce the power of government. These are people where you can't trust them to do it, but at least what they're saying is, uh, you know, what they're saying is the kind of thing that you wouldn't say if you were just a power-hungry monster, right? So, yeah, you know, those are the kinds of people to look uh, look at. I have a piece that I wrote uh, more recently on Venezuelan roulette. Where I just said, look. Um, most countries where that you get a far in Latin America, where you get a far left leader, don't become Venezuela. Something like 15 percent do, and that is a sufficient reason to never vote for such people ever, regardless. All right, and I have a piece I'm going to come up with called Iranian Roulette. Same, same, same one. Like 15 percent chance they're going to turn your country into an Islamic theocracy. 
no way, no how should they ever get anywhere within 100 miles of the reins of power, people like that, that's just too risky. Yes, I know they don't all turn their countries into horrible murderous theocracies, but you can't tell in advance, so just say no to someone like that. You know, the people of the trust are ones who, who don't go and promise the world, who, uh, people who say, let's have tolerance, let's, have, let's try to go and, have, and increase the prosperity of their country, let's, and who do not go and scapegoat the usual targets of foreigners or the rich or minority religions. Right? These are the people where it's like, all right, well, maybe something good will happen anyway. Right? And, and otherwise, yes, have, just having a high level of distrust uh, is not just the cynical thing. It is also the virtuous thing to do. Say, look, I'm going to base my views upon past experience. The best way to judge the future is by the past. In the past, this has worked out very poorly. And I'm going to assume that the future will resemble the past rather than just letting my emotions get ahead of me. And Trevor, uh, if readers are wondering where can they get the book, so the book is an Amazon exclusive. You can get the paperback for just $12, which due to rampant inflation is quickly eroding in real price. Uh, you can also get the ebook for just $9.99. And the title of the book is How Evil Are Politicians? Essays on Demagoguery. Uh, the author is me, Brian Kaplan. And this is, by the way, part of a whole series of books of my best essays from the last 17 years. So this book is the second in the series. There's another one coming out next month. And in the near term of about two years, all eight should be out. So collect them all. Thanks for listening. If you enjoy Free Thoughts, make sure to rate and review us at Apple Podcasts or in your favorite podcast app. Free Thoughts is produced by Landry Ayers. If you'd like to learn more about libertarianism, visit us on the web at libertarianism.org.